Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 16 years of intelligence and crime analysis experience, and he spent 31 years as a CIA officer with a total of 55 years of experience overall. He's an expert in intelligent writing. He's authored books such as Intelligence and Crime Technology, a Glossary of Terms and Acronyms, and a Handbook for Crime and Intelligence Analysts. He teaches intelligence analysis for both the FBI and FinCEN. After a family member was a victim in a mass shooting in 2002, he now examines and analyzes mass shootings. You can often find him every year presenting at the IALEA conference. Please welcome David Karens. David, how are we doing? I'm fine. Thank you, Jason. Good to uh, see you. It is good to hear from you and see you as well. So I am glad we're doing this. I Quite a uh, uh, and a set of experiences that you have here. So I hope I did your intro justice. Uh, that, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> oh, too, too much of me in an introduction would put everyone to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely don't want to do that. Let's see here. I think it was 2010 at the IA conference in Nashville okay. that we met and I had the pleasure of sitting through your intelligence writing class. And for those that ever get an opportunity to be to see his David's presentation, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It is fantastic. So here today, we're going to talk obviously about writing, and yeah. certainly we'll talk about your time at CIA, and we'll get into your law enforcement experience and tips for for writing for the audience. So, okay. uh, so, but let's start from the beginning. How did, did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Okay, well, actually, I, I'm gonna, going to define it slightly differently. I'm going to say, how did I discover the intelligence profession? Okay. And it was completely by accident. I didn't really know that much about it. I was a student working on my PhD in German and Polish history, sitting on a nice fall day with the window open, uh, five of us in the professor's office with a seminar talking about Germans in the 18th century in some godforsaken town in central Germany. And I kept thinking there's got to be something more to life than this. <laughs> and I had, you know, after spending seven years in school, I, all of a sudden I had this epiphany and I've got to have a break. I, there's something else, you know. So I, after class, I talked with my best friend and he was a former military intelligence officer. And I said, Dick, I don't want to do this anymore. What am I going to do? I was going to, I had my whole life pointed toward being a German Polish history professor. And he said, have you thought of intelligence? And I said, not really. I said, you're going to tell me about it. And so he said, it's really interesting. Why don't you go to the placement office on campus and see what they can set up for you? So I went over. I told them I would talk to anybody, <laughs> you know. Anybody that might be interested, and this may come as a surprise, Jason, but there's not a huge demand for people with Polish-German history backgrounds. <laughs> so I interviewed to everybody that would talk to me, and I got one job interview out of all of it, and it was CIA. Wow. And I had no idea what I was getting in for when, 
when I was intrigued by it. But um, frankly, my total idea of intelligence was the James Bond movies. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, because I just hadn't given it any thought. And I thought, I had some reservations. And I thought, well, what, do I got, what have I got to lose? So they flew me to Washington a couple of times because I was, I was in the Bay Area and uh, interviewed me and hired me. And uh, here I am. <laughs> That's how I got started. I didn't get into police intelligence, however, until after 9-11. And the 9-11 Commission, in their, in their report and in their work with, with Congress, it was determined that the intelligence community would adopt a lot of the CIA standards in terms of writing and presenting intelligence. And there were about a dozen of us that would start with the FBI. And there were about a dozen of us who were asked if we would be willing to teach at the FBI Academy. At that point, I was the, uh, I had been uh, by the, the head of the, the training unit at CIA University uh, to train all of the new analysts in, in intelligence analysis, writing, and briefing. And I said, sure, I'd love to go down. So we, we, uh, the interesting, interesting side note on that is, uh, if you remember from the 9-11 report, everybody in the intelligence community got a black eye. Mm-hmm. For now, okay. Well, the FBI really got a black eye. And if an organization can suffer from some sort of depression, that was the case in the FBI. Because if you remember, when I, well, at least when I was growing up, the FBI, these were the guys they made movies about, the, the TV shows about them, and they, they were always held up in high esteem. Now, all of a sudden, nationwide, they're being beaten severely about the head because of of 9-11. And by the way, that's not what happened to them at that time is really not fair. We could have a whole a whole broadcast on that one. But but at any rate, we were told to go down. And the the funny thing was, you see, the CIA in in, in 2005 and 2006, we were still the new guy on the block. We were formed in 1947. The FBI goes back to the end of World War One. So we were one of the things I still remember from the briefing about going down is you will not mention CIA while you are there because their nerves and sensitivity is this really raw. So we had to only talk about the intelligence community yeah. <laughs> while we were there. We were given instructions on what we could say and not say. That's that's how sensitive the program was. And then from that, I was asked by you. I, I heard you in one of your broadcasts. You mentioned Lisa Palmieri. Mm-hmm. OK, well, Lisa had asked the CIA for someone to teach intelligence and crime analysis at the ILEA-LEIU conference. And my name was the one that was put forward. And that's how I started with LEIU and ILEA. And from that from that audience, then I began getting requests to teach classes, and it just simply blossomed into something that I never dreamed it would. I was almost as busy teaching for for about four or five years as I was when I was a full-time employee because the demand was so great. So that's a long story, but that's how I came to it. And I I should add very quickly before we move on, the work with, with the police intelligence, I found absolutely fascinating because I was dealing with very bright, dedicated people who were addressing intelligence problems that I never had to address. They were never, they were not on my screen at all at any time. And it was fascinating to work with them 
in terms of you know organized crime, drug trafficking, human trafficking, child pornography, things things of this nature. One of the classes that I helped teach at the FBI Academy involved working with mid and more senior level analysts, and we actually worked with them on live problems, papers that they were working on, and I found it absolutely fascinating and very rewarding to see that these these principles that that I well frankly from a personal standpoint that in some way I was helping them to improve the products that they were that they were turning out so uh, yeah I should also before we go any further tell you that that yes I have been doing this for 55 years I'm still doing some teaching and some speaking and I absolutely love the profession. It's it's terribly difficult to give up because it is so rewarding, not in terms of money. You'll never get rich, and I'm walking proof of that. But in terms of the job, you know, the, the... sense of satisfaction and reward. If you have, if your analysis is read at any level, whether it's state, local, federal government, and a high level level policymaker makes a decision that pertains to the safety of this country and its citizens based on what you write, man, that is job satisfaction that's, that's hard to equal. I will tell you, I've been there. Yeah. Yes, I agree. So I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the FBI, mentioned the CIA, and they're just really two different siblings altogether because the FBI seems like they're always in a lot of cookie jars. They're out in front, they're in public, they're in a lot of news stories. Whereas the CIA, I feel it's not news stories that they're in. It's like rumors that they are like doing secret (laughs) experiments on people or or whatnot. And then there's, and then there's the NSA that basically for the most part, it's been under the radar. I think with the, the lone exception with the NSA is when they there was a wiretapping stuff that went on right, back right. in, about, I think, 2008. But other yeah. than that, the NSA, you, most people don't even know about yeah. at, at all. So I, I find it funny that you have these three sibling agencies and they really behave very differently. Well, they, um, have, different, they have three very different charters. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why. And if you, if you recall, this, the CIA, our charter is only to do foreign intelligence, mm-hmm. strictly prohibited from doing anything in the United States until recently. OK, and when I say until recently, this is this is what I mean, that when I was at the agency, suppose you were following a the CIA was following a terrorist mm-hmm. and that terrorist, we were building a case against him. We're following him. We're looking at his connections. We're doing all of these things. And he comes into the United States. Well, we had to handle the case, the case over to the FBI. Time was lost. And in some cases, the terrorist was lost. It was inefficient. So there, there are instances, if, if we have an overseas case in the individuals, it's my understanding, I was never an operations officer, sure. but it's my understanding that if you have a terrorist coming into the United States, that, that we could now work with the FBI and, and we work very closely with them, which is, a, this is one of the really good things to come out of 9-11, okay. is, a, is a much closer cooperation between all three of the organizations. And I jokingly, well, let me, let me also say before, the, the stop to think of what the two organizations, the FBI and the CIA are set up to do. The FBI is set up to track down the criminals, as I said, the drug trafficker, whatever it is, bring them to justice, try them, and and lock them up. Mm -hmm. 
That's, that's what they do. Now, what is the CIA set up to do? CIA is set up to gather clandestinely intelligence overseas. In effect, the CIA is set up to get people to break the law. <laughs> because you see, you may not want to hear that. Mm-hmm. But, but if you recruit a spy in country X, what is that spy doing? He's breaking that country's law, isn't he? Yes. You see? Mm-hmm. So, so you're absolutely right. There's a whole different mentality between the two organizations. And that also spills over into our products. Because the FBI, who's the main product of the FBI? It's the legal community. So their reports can be used in litigation. Therefore, they are argued differently. They are argued to legal standards. CIA reports are not argued to legal standards. Okay, so there is a complete difference as to what you will accept in terms of evidence and what is the threshold and when do you write. For example, I've written intelligence that has gone into the president's daily brief that's been based on a three-sentence press announcement out of a communist country. Mm-hmm. That's really not going to happen in the FBI because they need the evidence. They, they operate under, under a different standard. So the marriage between the two organizations, and they are working together closely, and this is a tremendous plus in the, in the wake of 9-11. I'm, I'm really pleased. You have FBI analysts sitting next to, to CIA analysts, sitting next to State Department people. This is, this is a huge step forward. But, but you still have each organization has its own requirements and was set up to do certain things. And somehow these all have to be blended and melded together. Okay. Hmm. Okay? So, so you mentioned that you weren't a field officer with the CIA, but you're no. a CIA officer. How would you describe the work that you did in your 31 years with, as a CIA officer? Well, I'm, I was an intelligence analyst. Mm-hmm. I was a political analyst and my specialty, my area of specialty was Eastern Europe. Okay. And specifically, I was a Balkan analyst. I worked in, I started out when I first joined uh, joined the agency and, and people will think, well, this is typical government. Since my background in Eastern Europe would have been in Poland, where do they put me? They put me on Bulgaria, which is about as far away from Poland in Eastern Europe as you can get. Okay. But they know what else to do with you. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they came. What are we going to do with this young guy? But as a bonus to sweeten the pot, they not only did did they give me Bulgaria, they gave me Albania. So, (laughs) but I was happy to have him. I I was thrilled with it. I had a great time. I was concerned about, I didn't really, I'd had one course, history course in the Ottoman Empire. And that's the closest I came to knowing anything about the Balkans. I had a mentor who worked with me. And uh, I said, I don't know anything about it. And he said, about this area. And he said, well, don't worry. We have a program for all new analysts. And you will be rewriting our National Intelligence Survey. This is a publication that no longer exists. But it was sort of a, a basic encyclopedia, mini encyclopedia of a given country or region that covered everything, politics, economics, military, culture, music, art, every, everything. Mm-hmm. And, and they would give you about six months to, to review what existed and then to do research and update it and bring it up to date. So that was their approach 
to bring in, but they also had you doing current intelligence under the supervision of senior analysts. So I, I was also writing some current intelligence on Bulgaria, but the whole time I was building up to my speed. You might be interested in a little war story on this. Sure. All right. Um, because of my concern about Bulgaria not knowing anything, I asked my mentor, I said, look, Gene, I know nothing about this. Isn't there anybody in the CIA I can talk to about Bulgaria? And he said, I said, doesn't someone know a lot? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, there's a woman over in operations. Her name is Mary Tasha. Her family fled when the communists took over. She still has family members who are, are fairly high-level officials in the Bulgarian Communist Party. She knows that country from A to Z. Mm-hmm. I said, fantastic. Where is she? I, I need to meet her. And he said, you can't. You can't talk with her. <laughs> and I said, I said, what? You know, because she's in the, we're in the same building. And he said, well, you don't understand, Dave. The operations people really don't want us to know their people and and they they don't want us coming over and and control and our interaction with the operations people is very tightly controlled well i was out of college about a year and i hadn't been beaten about the head by the bureaucracy so i wasn't going to take this so what i did was we used to have to hand carry memos and things from the front office over to our counterparts in operations, and I knew the secretaries hated to do that. So one day when I knew a major memo was going over, I managed to find myself in our front office, and I said, by the way, I'm going over to operations. Do you have anything you want me to carry? The secretary said, ah, if you would take this memo over, I would appreciate it. Okay. And in the building at CIA, you're going to, I don't know whether you've heard this story or not, but it is true. We actually, separating us from operations, we had turnstiles with a, with a security officer in them. And for me to go over to operations, I had to show my badge that I had the proper credentials and go through the turnstiles to get in. Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of things we had to do. Yeah. But at any rate, I, so I walked into to the operations East Europe and I said, here's the memo, such and such. And I said, by the way, where does Mary Tashif sit? And they said, oh, she's down right down this row of offices. She's the last one on the left. So I went down, stuck my head and I said, hey, Mary, my name's Dave Karens. Wonder if I could have a few minutes of your time. I'm the new analyst training to work on Bulgaria. And she said, oh, come in, sit down. So I spent one of the most rewarding hours that I have ever spent in intelligence. And I said, Mary, this is fantastic. I said, you're a resource I need. Can we talk? And she said, no, we can't. (laughs) We didn't have this conversation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She said, if your boss finds out and my boss finds out, we're going to be in trouble. So Mary, I still wouldn't take no. So Mary and I set up a deal where once a month at a certain time in the morning in the cafeteria, we would bump into each other and have a coffee. And at that time, I'd have a list of questions for, and she, <laughs> she answered, I was running operations against the operations. I was CIA. just going to say, you're, you <laughs> infiltrated the CIA. Yeah. I, well, I figure it's CIA they ought to understand, right? Yes. So did they ever catch you doing this? No, no they never did. Yeah. They never did. Which, which, which gave me pause. <laughs> <laughs> so then it sounds like you become the subject matter expert then in, for Bulgaria for the, the CIA. And I so did. that you were supposed to essentially consume all information, reports. If it had to do with Bulgaria, you were to consume it and study it and report back on it. 
That's exactly right. That That's exactly right. And what they have in, in CIA, and sometimes I've asked this question, particularly with other intelligence organizations, ab- about the selection of analysts. And, and I, what I tell them, because I was, was very much, as, as I, I told you earlier, involved in the training of new analysts. Mm-hmm. We give our intelligence analysts two years to become what is known as an, a standalone analyst. Now, what does that mean? You have two years to become the subject matter expert on your country. You do not have to wait to be told to write something. You're following the traffic. You go to your management and you say, this has come in about Bulgaria or whatever it is, and I think it needs to be reported. And we had we have various levels of publications. Of course, the president's daily brief down all the way to publications for fellow analysts. So you even say this, I believe we should propose a, a a PDB note. A note is four para- as is four sentences. It's a one paragraph on this, and you need to do that. And then the second thing is you need to be able to write it against the intelligence style of writing. And so if if at the end of two years you are really not on top of your of the programs of, of whatever it is that you're following substantively, or you cannot produce a draft that it may need editing, but it's still a decent draft that adheres to the intelligence style of writing, the CIA will try and find you another position within the organization. Hmm. Okay. So they're, they're very strict on that. They also do something else. And I really, they're not paying me for this, but, <laughs> but, but, but I think is really good. And that is they take training extremely seriously and to teach in the new intelligence analysts at CIA University you must be a proven intelligence analyst and they will give you the, the training skills to teach you how to, to organize a class and teach a class and those things. But you must be a successful intelligence analyst before they will put you in front of the incoming analysts. Okay. Hmm. So- that is important. And it's important for this reason. I was asked in my career if I would be a, an operations officer, case officer. Would I like to do that? To, to, I, mean, I mean, not be the officer, but train them. Mm-hmm. And I said, I would love to train them. But I said, this is the problem. Well, it's not, a, I can read the textbook and the course material and I, under, I can understand it and I can present it. But the first time one of these operations officers asks me, this is my problem. When I was in the field and I was running an agent in Moscow and I, this was my problem. How do you handle that? My answer is, I don't know, because I have never been an operations officer. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with the, with, with the analyst. If you have an analyst standing in front of the class and you get one of these hardball questions, you are prepared to answer, this is how you handle it. Hmm. So with the CIA, what do you feel that are some key attributes that they look for when they're hiring their analyst? You know, well, first of all, because of the number of applicants, I had a friend who worked up on, a, and I mean, right up under the, the deputy director for a while. And one of his duties was reviewing the applications that come in. The CIA gets 10,000 applications a month to work for. Them. So they have to start somewhere. And I do not agree with this. And, uh, and I, if you want, I can tell you why. But, but I do not agree with this, that, you, that, for example, to be an analyst, you have to have a master's degree, okay? So, and they just automatically, if you don't have a master's degree, it's my understanding 
that your application is put aside if you want to be an analyst. Okay, so they have some some sort of artificial rules that, that they follow in terms of selecting. They're all they're looking for people who are who have demonstrated an ability to do. Would be my impression and. and demonstrated ability to do research and and to pull fragmentary bits of evidence into some cohesive logical argument and they they do give the applicants a a pretty strict writing test okay they want to see how they how, how well they're able to formulate an argument and there are a lot of very bright people who simply have a, a difficult time not forming a logical argument in speech but they have a, a difficult time in putting it down on paper i don't yeah. know why that is but two, but yeah. it is yeah seems so like two the, different looking, skill sets yeah it's two different skill sets if you have a foreign language that is great if you have traveled overseas that is great and i found out after i was after i was hired that one of the questions i was asked was absolutely vital and i didn't know it Mm-hmm. And that, even though I would not serve overseas as an operations officer, I was asked, are you willing to travel overseas or even live overseas? And I said, absolutely. That's one of my goals. Which <laughs> and, I, and I achieved it. I lived overseas twice yeah. and I traveled extensively. I didn't know it, but they will, they will turn people down based on you know, everything else may be perfect in terms of, but, but if you're, if you're not flexible, in terms of going overseas, when they need you overseas, they can't use you. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. So you've worked several decades with right. the CIA. When you started, you're going through the 70s, the, yeah. the data that you had access to, then the 80s, 90s, and even into the 2000s, that it seems like there's way more data by the time you're ending your career in the 2000s, as opposed to what you were dealing with in the oh, 70s. Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and and if you want to know the truth, I look now at, at what intelligence analysts, the, the flood of information, and, and I'm so glad that I'm not having to do it. <laughs> I thought it was terrible when I joined the agency. Again, if you'll allow me to just do, do sure. a bit of a sidebar, but it's related to it. Do you know how information in the 1960s and 1970s was delivered to the analysts at CIA and probably in, in all of the intelligence organizations? This yeah. is the way it was done. Once an hour, a person up in the operations center, the operations center is the 24-hour sort of, I don't know what you call it, all, all, Everything comes in there, all of the clandestine reporting. They monitor radios, televisions worldwide. Everything comes in. It's it's the all-source center for all intelligence coming into the CIA. And what they would do is they have some officers who are in charge of regions. And their job is simply to print off or tear off those reports and stack them. All, all the Bulgarian goes in one stack. All the Yugoslav goes in another. Then all the Polish goes in another. And they get a shopping cart, just like the ones at Safeway. Yeah. And they stack those in there. And once an hour, they would wheel the cart down to us, and they would come to our desk and drop this stack of paper oh, on man. our desk. And, and that's what we went through. That's how it was done. Oh, it reminds I, me of I, like the return items at the store, right? When someone returns right, right. an item and they've got to go put it back on the shelf, they'll have several shopping carts <laughs> there. And then they'll call, they call whoever's in charge of the department to come put this back on the shelf. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and interestingly enough, I, again, I'm going to give you another short war story. 
Sure. One of the things I was, as I told you, I was concerned about not knowing that much about the part of Eastern Europe I was dealing with. And I joined in November of 66. I went into their nine-month training program in February of 67. I came out in, as, and went back on, on, on duty as a current intelligence officer in September of 67. And I ex- was expressing my concern and one and and my mentor said to me, "Look, Dave, don't worry about it because in the summer in Eastern Europe, everybody goes on vacation. You're going to have three months where you can really catch up on everything and do do all of that. That's great. Well, that was the summer of 1968. What happened in the summer of 1968? Oh, that's the, that's the, nine years before me, so I don't know. Well, let me let me tell you. <laughs> Ask your grandfather. It was the Soviet-led occupation of Czechoslovakia, okay. and it began building in 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 April. And so, what happened as the summer progressed? The CIA set up a task force to follow on 24 hours a day, follow the developments in Czechoslovakia. Well, what did that mean? That meant that there were only two people left in all of the East European division to read the daytime traffic. (laughs) One of the senior branch chiefs and the new guy on the block, me. I'm sitting there with all those stacks. I don't just have Bulgaria. I've got everybody but Poland. Poland all went to the Polish task force. I had everybody else, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, you know, Albania. I had the the Yugoslavia, the works. So you're going through, you're making snap decisions. Well, I get this paper, I lift up and there's a paper in it. It was a brown sheet of paper that looked like something that the butcher would wrap fish in. Okay. But it had all these these hash marks and and X's and dots and slashes and words on it. and, And it said GDR, German Democratic Republic. And I looked at it and it said, then it said communications. And then it just had the words stand down. And I had no idea what that meant. (laughs) I knew I had never seen anything like it before. But keep in mind, this is like one or two in the afternoon. And my boss is on the phone. You can imagine he's fielding phone calls from Congress from all over the place. And I don't want to interrupt him (laughs) with stuff. So I set this sheet of paper aside and it kept staring at me. And I, I said, you know, what is, what is Frank going to do to me? Is he going to kick me out? Is he going to throw something at me? I'm going to go in. I want to show him this. Mm-hmm. So I took it in. I handed it to him. He stood up and said, holy shit. <laughs> They're going in. It was, it was military stand down and communications, the precursor to the occupation. The CIA went into immediate emergency mode, and I'm sitting at my my desk, (laughs) thank you, God. Thank you. (laughs) You So, I mean, I'm the new guy, and I I just did not know what I was doing. So the only thing that I had, it was so odd and so unusual that I've given the crisis situation, I felt I had to draw it to his attention. And boy, am I glad I did. <laughs> and now I'm sure that as, as a result, I think the CIA was the first to notify the White House that it looked like the Soviet and, and, and East German, and I forget who else went. I think, I don't know whether Hungary went in or not, but any, anyway, it was, it was that they were going in. But now today, of course, the, you, you've got, you've got, tons of things coming in, you know, by the, the systems that they have set up. And, and I really don't know how people manage it all. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you because I, I feel that you could spend your whole day just on social media. Yes. Uh, Facebook oh, and Twitter, you could spend your whole day right there, let alone all the other reports and stuff that you're supposed to consume. You could spend your whole entire time on two platforms. And well, to me, it's just like a fire hydrant to the face that you're yeah. trying to consume all this stuff and make intelligence out of it. Well, I, I think, but I'm not sure. When I was there, they, the CIA, when I was there, had open source intelligence analysts. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, that's long before social media and things like, like that. Yeah. But never the, nevertheless, given the, the quantity, even when I was an analyst, and the amount of open source intelligence, they had, they had analysts doing just that, just mm-hmm. following the press and the TV and the radio on that. Yeah. And and I was in communications with with those people frequently. Hello, this is Brian Gray and my advice for analysts is don't settle for mediocrity. If you want to be happy in this career, long term, you can't be a minimalist. Just don't do what you're asked for, do what you know is right. And don't ever ever substitute quantity for quality. And if you haven't found a way to put design to work for you, you're not doing your best work. Hey, this is Don Reby. I'm here with Jason Elder on Analyst Talk. And I want to share with you that there is a new book coming out for supervisors called Building a Crime Analysis Legacy. This is a law enforcement supervisor's roadmap to building long lasting, high quality analytical capacity. August 10th is the day that it comes out. Don't miss out. Tools strategies, everything you need to build quality analytics is in this book. So be sure to get your copy on August 10th. I do want to fast forward a little bit here because I want to get to your time with ILEA, starting to teach, getting to the law enforcement side of things. You had mentioned it before that you started to get into just different issues that you never thought that you would get into. Right. You talked right. about, you know, drugs and child pornography, different ways, uh, different yeah. issues you'd never thought you'd get into. When you when you first get into this, maybe a little bit compare and contrast what you experienced in the CIA with what you've experienced in law enforcement. Well, let me, let me just say a couple of things, and it goes back to what I said earlier. The standards for going to print are very different. When I first started going to, to the FBI, I would be asking them, the FBI analysts, to make a judgment on one or two sources. And they said, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. And my answer to them was, but, but the, the one, what, is, what is important here is the time sensitivity. If you wait to get more sources, it may be too late by then. So you, and that that was one thing that was a real eye opener to me with the FBI. They they were very much tied to to the legal form of very detailed argumentation. Okay, which is is not what the CIA does. The CIA is much more like a very quick journalist approach. Okay paragraphs, tell them what the argument is, 
the feeling being that if a consumer wants all of that detail, they will ask, and mm -hmm. they do. And that's when we come in with, 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 with a more detailed argument. So that was the first thing that I saw in, in terms of, of, the, uh, of law enforcement intelligence. Now, what I'm also seeing, and, and I had this, at, and I alluded to it when I talked about the turnstiles and not being able to talk to the ops officers. When I joined the CIA, the analysts were sort of second-class citizens. And that has been the case, and it is in, to some extent still, in police intelligence, intelligence, and also in some of the work that's done at the FBI. And the problem is, is, is a lack of understanding on the part of what intelligence can do and should do, okay? And so that, that is a problem. And that is something that I've worked with some of the analysts. How do we, at the, at the FBI and in some of the police forces, you know, how do we get around this? How, how do we get people to listen to us? And, and uh, because you do get pushback. I mean, they're the people who've been in their career 20, 25 years. And, well, we've, all, we've always done it this way. Why do we need to change now? Mm -hmm. but, but the argument that I give them, and I, I did this at CIA, is look, if you're a case officer or you're a police officer and you're out there on the street and, and you may be an undercover individual, you, you may be in, have infiltrated a gang or a drug organization, something like that. You're putting your life on the line to get information, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Are you happy if that information goes to someone who you consider is nothing more than a file clerk? Don't you really want it to go to a first-rate analyst who processes it and, and makes sure that the information gets to the decision maker that it needs to get to? So those are some of the, some of the things that, that I've seen and, and some of the problems that I see. So then you start teaching then and you're yeah. teaching different students that I, I, when we were doing the prep call yesterday, you had an interesting story to tell about, I think you, you were teaching in Canada and you had somebody ask you about some interns yes, coming yeah. in. Will you share that story? I sure will. It's my feeling and I, that, that, the young people coming into the profession are exactly what you need. They're bright, they're enthusiastic, they've not been beaten down by the bureaucracy. So when I teach, and when I was teaching at CIA, wherever I go, I tell them to value these young people because they're looking at, at the problems that you've been looking at for a long time, but they're looking at them with a fresh eye. They may see something that you don't see. And I think I told you about at CIA something that, that I think that that impressed me right from the outset, that I was told to call everybody by first name. And that includes the director of Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> Bob Gates is a former analyst. I, I worked with him and I knew him. And he did this with all analysts. If we had to take a report to him, he was Bob and I was Dave. Yes. Yeah, okay. That, and the, the idea is that the, the, what's behind that is that ideas are the lifeblood of intelligence. You do not want any artificial barrier to break it. So I was in Canada teaching for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And the opening day, the sponsor of the course said, we have a couple of interns. Do you mind if we put them in the course? And I said, fine with me. I don't care who's in it. Mm -hmm. And I made the point that, that young people, it's important as intelligence officers that you listen to the young people that, that are brought in, listen to their ideas, because they may be right and you may be wrong. Well, I think about on the second exercise, these two interns, without a doubt, turned in the best papers. <laughs> 
the best analytic paragraphs that I got. So I couldn't help myself when I, when I gave the feedback to the exercise. I said, this class just proved my point. I said, the two interns that, that you have in this class gave, turned in the best paragraphs. They don't really have the experience, but they had the analytic ability after they understood what the writing and analytic principles were, they applied them to the problem and, and they turned in something absolutely excellent. And they were just interns and they beat, they beat the analysts out at it. So I think that's the wisdom of, of listening to anyone, no matter what, at what stage or what point they are in their career and making sure that everybody that comes to the table has a voice and is comfortable saying what's on their mind. All right, let's get into some of the principles then, because I I think it's a good exercise to explain why those two interns had better paragraphs. Okay, the the really the hallmark of intelligence writing revolves around conceptualization. I don't care if you have one page bit of intelligence source or whether you have twenty different intelligence sources. After you have read it, and after you've thought about it and analyzed it, what is the one point, the one overriding significant intelligence point that the customer or or, or reader needs to know? And in teaching intelligence writing, some of your listeners may have had intelligence writing courses. I refer to it as the what, what has happened, and the so what. What does it mean? And it's the so what that you're being paid for. Anybody can say there was an assassination attempt on the prime minister of X country this morning. The intelligence officer is the one that says, what does it mean? And that is extremely significant. And it is is very, very difficult to do because it runs against all of the training that most of us have had in academic writing, where you start out your paragraphs with the smallest bit of evidence, and you take the reader almost by the hand and walk them through until the last line of the last paragraph, you tell them what it means. Mm-hmm. Intelligence writing flips it. And for any of, your, of, you, of your listeners who are thinking about go- the profession of being an intelligence analyst and, and, and writing frightens you off, don't be afraid. Because intelligence writing really relies on the very basics of the English language. And good intelligence writing relies on sentences with little or no internal punctuation. So if you're always befuddled by where you put commas and semicolons, forget it. You found the right profession. Intelligence writing likes strong, active voice sentences, not passive voice. Intelligence writing, and in fact, one of the things when I teach classes, I ask for people's hobbies, and I'm looking for people who write. And I've had people who, I've had a, a, a romance novelist who published eight or 10 novels. To be an intelligence writer, it's going to be very difficult for her for this reason. She, one, she's had a lot of success in one form of writing, but that form of writing relies heavily on adjectives, on mood, nuance, innuendo, none of which we are allowed. <laughs> okay? Yes. We, that's, we don't do it. So she has to eliminate adjectives. She has to almost eliminate, completely eliminate adverbs. <clears throat> so it's, it's based on a very strict, basic use of the English language. And as I said, straightforward, declarative, active voice sentences should make up the bulk of your intelligence writing. There are, there are some idiosyncrasies to it. We, we do use bullets. And frankly, I've been brainwashed. I love bullets. If, too. If I, yeah, well, what it tells me is that the, the author has taken time 
to break down something that's very complicated and put it in a form that is visually digestible. That's what bullets are. Whereas if you put that, those bullets in a long, drawn-out, run-on sentence, no one would read it. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I'd rather read something that has bullets in it than like five or six paragraphs. Well, the problem with bullets and the way, where they're abused in intelligence writing, you must have that topic sentence with the what and so what to give the bullets context. Mm-hmm. Because the bullets are then probably going to be the evidence supporting the assertion that you that you've made. So you know their their economy of words cut down down words. We all have a tendency to to write way too much, and I think it's in part because of our academic training. I don't know how you were in college, but when I got an assignment, I, I thought, hmm, how can I make this paper weigh twenty pounds? <laughs> yeah, because well, there was always there was always a minimum, right? You had to either right, do right. a five pager, or it had to be so many words, or right. which, if you stop to think of it, is absolutely ridiculous. Because why would you, if you're the professor, the teacher, the instructor, or or a, a supervisor, why do you want to have to read twenty pages when a skilled <laughs> writer can present it in one? Yes. Okay, yes. It, it does not make sense. Okay, but nevertheless, the damage has been inflicted on all of us Mm -hmm. because that's the way we were trained. So I will tell you, I spent my whole career and even to this day, I catch myself falling back on on the old academic way of writing. And I I will proof myself to make sure in all the writing that I do in all of my books Mm -hmm. and where possible that I have the main point of what I want to say right up front, that I, I grab the reader with that. And that's, in intelligence writing, titles are always something that that I found to be difficult. But titles are extremely important because titles are what capture the reader's attention. So therefore, it is important to have a, I believe, a short title, no more than four or five words. And then that is your hook that pulls the reader in. The title is the contract with the reader. You deliver on the contract in the topic sentence. For example, I do an exercise based on a phony Middle Eastern country, and the, the name is, is Wango, W-A-N-G-O. And so I put the word Wango colon assassination attempt on president. That's the title. That's going to that's gonna hook them. That's mm-hmm. going to catch them. Okay? So your topic sentence is President Wadi was wounded today in an assassination attempt, but a coup does not appear to be in progress. That's your point. The government doesn't appear to be being overthrown. Mm-hmm. So those two things, your contract, which is the title, and your topic sentence, that's the hook that, that gets the reader to read what you've written. What I thought about when you were saying that is there's a saying, don't bury the lead, right? right. So you have the right. title. The, the first thing you need to say is what the lead story is. Don't, don't okay. leave it three or four paragraphs or sentences down the road talk about it now well i you know i thought i was going to ruin u.s canadian relations because of that <laughs> i was at an ilea conference and someone from canadian intelligence a group from sat in in my presentation afterwards and they said came up and really nice and they said can can we buy you a cup of coffee and i said great i'd love to and they said we brought a paper to the conference and we wonder if you would look at it and give us your opinion. So I took it to the hotel room that night. This was when it was in Mexico City. And, and my wife was with me. And I read the paper. And it was beautiful. It was glossy. I mean, <laughs> the finest 
paper, color photos, color. I mean, it was absolute. This thing cost a small fortune, but they buried the main point on the fourth or fifth page in the middle of the page. And so I, I, after I read it, I said to my wife, I said, what do I do? This is not intelligence. This is an academic paper. No one's going to, if this is going to the prime minister of Canada, he's not going to read it. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, I was debating, <laughs> what do I say? Mm-hmm. So I went down the next morning, they wanted to meet me and I, and I took the paper with me and they said, well, well, tell us what you want, what, what you thought. And I looked at him and I said, well, you want me to be honest, right? He said, yeah. And I said, this is a beautiful paper, but it's not intelligent. I said, verify this for me. The third paragraph on page four, second line in the third paragraph, that's your main point of the whole paper, isn't it? They said, yes, it is. I said, why have you put it there? Your prime minister's not going to read it. This is never going to be read. Nobody's going to look at it. I said, it needs to be completely restructured. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, there we go. Setting back. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was, what I didn't know was they were on a panel at ILEA. In fact, the, one of the men from Canada was, I think he was the chairman of that panel for discussion. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to return the favor. I'm just going to go listen to what they have to say. <laughs> he stood up to hint. <laughs> to talk about it. And he said, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. He said, you know, one of the great things about coming to these ILEA conferences is the people that you meet and what you learn. And what we learned is that the paper that we brought is not intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went into it. And I'm, I'm sort of sinking down in the audience saying, please don't oh, say God. my name. Yes. Yes. <laughs> please don't say my name. <laughs> did he say your name yeah he did oh man and so I thought, I thought well i'm gonna get blackballed from this but yeah you know, actually within two weeks after i got back from mexico city i had an invitation to come to ottawa to teach canadian intelligence oh man so look at that it didn't yeah, close so the door I it opened up the door page, i guess i'm i'm not sure all right that's that's interesting. You had mentioned the idea of getting beaten down by the bureaucracy. Yeah. And I do want to ask you about advice to the experienced analyst, but I want to start there. What would your advice be to experienced analysts to ensure that they don't, quote unquote, get beaten down by bureaucracy? Uh, okay. There's, there's several things I would tell experienced analysts and, and pertaining to what you're saying about not getting beaten down. And that is have the courage of your analytic convictions. Okay. You don't want to be stubborn, but intelligence analysts sometimes have a reputation outside of their immediate circle for, for being kind of arrogant and pushy. And, and to be quite truthful, that's not bad. You don't want them to be arrogant. You don't want them to be obnoxious. You don't want them to be stubborn. But you don't want goody two-shoes as your intelligence analyst. There is just too much at stake. Mm-hmm. Okay? So have the courage of your analytic convictions. Secondly, have the courage to admit that you are wrong. And that goes not only for analysts, that goes for managers and at all levels, everyone in intelligence and intelligence organizations. Because intelligence, by definition, risk is not part of our business. Risk is our business. Intelligence is written on fragmentary evidence. It is humanly impossible to be right all the time in intelligence. Mm-hmm. You are going to be wrong periodically. And I was told this right up front when I came to CIA. And this is what I was told. If you are wrong in a judgment call that you make and, and 
we get the evidence to show how you're wrong and why we will change. We will correct the record. And if you can show how you came to that judgment, you don't have anything to worry about because we are paying you to make the judgment. If an analyst at any level is looking over his or her shoulder with regard to his or her career, if I'm wrong, is this going to kill my career? Am I going to do this? That should not be the case. The analysts at all levels, beginning, mid-level, and senior, need to know that management is standing behind them. Because once the product is produced, it is the organization's product, okay? And, And therefore, the organization has to be willing to admit the call was not correct. We got new information. We turned out this report on Friday. On Monday, we got the three pieces of intelligence that we really needed but we had a deadline to meet. And that's something else I want to emphasize. When I teach analysts at at experience, whatever level it is, many times they talk only in terms of strategic and long-term intelligence. And they miss the whole point that you can either call it a third form of intelligence or something that cuts across those two, and that is current intelligence. Current intelligence is extremely important and meeting deadlines. Deadlines are critical. You can write the best piece of intelligence, but if it arrives 10 minutes after the decision was made, it's of absolutely no use. Mm-hmm. So it's important. There's a horror story from CIA. I have another quick one for you. Sure. And I forget, I, I forget what area of the world the analyst, I think it was, was Latin America, had written a paper, a, a major, well, it, it was a, an important paper. It wasn't quite major because they didn't think it was imminent. But it was right before the Christmas holidays. They wanted to put out, the, the analysts wanted to put this paper out about the, the pending collapse of government X, whatever, whatever it was. And it was decided at the CIA that, no, they weren't going to put it out because nobody would read it around the Christmas holidays. So they put it out the first week in January. The government collapsed between December and the 1st of January. Oh, man. Can you imagine that analyst <laughs> beating his head against the wall or her head against the wall? Oh, boy. Having it right. A deadline is a deadline. If yeah. a government is in, in danger of collapsing or falling or being overthrown, you don't wait because it's not the right time of the year. Yeah. You also don't let others do your thinking for you. I, one of the uh, the horror stories, you know, the June War, 1960, was it 67 or 60? When was it? When 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 the Egyptian forces crosses the, crossed the Red Sea and established a beachhead, the Sinai Peninsula. The CIA analyst had been trying to get into the president's daily brief for days, if not weeks, that war was imminent. And for a variety of reasons, it kept getting shot down at CIA headquarters, but he kept going after it every single day. He submitted it. And finally, he wore management down. And this, the president's daily brief is reviewed at about oh, two or three in the morning at the highest levels in the agency. And here's this thing on war is imminent in the Middle East. So someone in the director's office picked up the phone and called the Israeli embassy and said, our intelligence officers are telling us war is imminent. What is your reading of the situation? And so they talked to the Israeli, I believe the military attache, and he said, no, no, there's not going to be any war. <laughs> so in effect, the, the, the article that was published on the Middle East, on that part, on Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, the, the next morning said there would be no war, just as the Egyptian forces were crossing the Red Sea and establishing a beachhead. So, you know, this, the, the United States, we think we have the very best intelligence 
organization, and frankly, I think we do, all, all of us, the work that's done wherever it is, it's, it's outstanding. And yet we pick up the phone and call a foreign country and ask <laughs> their opinion, okay? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's <clears throat> so, yeah. so don't let others do it. Don't, if you can, try and prevent others from doing your thinking for you. Also, make sure if you are a, a, a mid-level to senior analyst, that you take time to help bring the junior analysts along. And, and don't just say, rewrite this, do it over, or my favorite comment, do this again. I don't know what I want. I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What you, you owe it to the junior analysts and to the profession to sit down with, with the junior analysts, if you're reviewing their papers, and tell them why you are changing and the reasons behind it. So that is an extremely important role for, for mid-level senior and senior analysts as well as 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 management itself to, to work with the younger people coming up. You mentioned outside influences, and it leads me to a question I want to ask you, which is that I know you you talk a little bit about during your presentations at ILEA, and that's the ethics yes. of the profession. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to get your take and give you a moment to talk about the ethics and the influence of outside influences on intelligence work. Okay. Well, first of all, I start from the premise that every single consumer of intelligence has an agenda. Everyone is coming to intelligence to looking for something. And if it's politicians, and I don't care what people's politics are, Mm -hmm. whether you're Republican, Democrat, Tea Party, I don't care. They're all coming to look at intelligence to support whatever issue or policy they're promoting. And if it does, we are the best thing that's ever come down the pike. (laughs) Now, if the intelligence shows that this policy is not worth the paper that it's written on, then they will go out and actually try to sabotage us. Even, even to, I've known of cases where ambassadors were so upset with papers that they called the director of CIA to complain about an intelligence report, okay? They will, they will bend over backwards to do this. Or another, another one of my favorite comments is, your report shows that our beloved president's policies are not worth anything. Yes, it does. <laughs> Okay, you're right. And our beloved president needs to know it. Now, what he does or she does with it is, is, is up to that person. Yeah. Okay. Um, but one of the best things that, that an intelligence analyst can do, an intelligence organization, is to tell the consumer what the consumer does not want to hear. Now, worse, however, is when the pressure comes from inside the intelligence organization. And that exists to one extent or another, in I believe, in every intelligence organization. As you know, you've heard me. I I won't bore you with it again, but I was actually told to lie. Yeah. Something. Mm -hmm. I was told to lie about something that really didn't make that much difference. There were no lives at stake. But the argument that I was told was this. Uh, By that time, I was the Yugoslav analyst, and I wrote a paper saying that the post-Tito government in Yugoslavia would survive as long as the Soviet and Union and Warsaw Pact existed. This was in 1983. And of course, I'm very proud of that paper because when the Soviet Union imploded and the Warsaw Pact went away, Yugoslavia broke into its constituent republics. So the paper was 
no one remembers it but me. <laughs> but it was right. But this is what he told me. If you say that this country, that Yugoslavia is going to hold together and it doesn't, and there's civil war in the next few weeks or months, that's bad for your career and it's bad for mine. But if you will write a paper saying there's the danger of civil war and bloodshed, and it doesn't happen. No one will remember that. And that's good for your career. And it's good for mine. And that's when I got up and walked out of the office. All analysts at some point or another are going to be told to cook the books, if not out and out lie. And when I headed the the training program at CIA, I made sure that we spent a whole day on the ethics of the profession because every analyst has to make up his or her mind what they're going to do. And what I would tell the junior analysts, I say, look, there's really not a whole heck of a lot you can do because you do not, as a young officer, you do not have the credibility yet to fight the bureaucracy. But once you become a mid to senior level analyst, you have a reputation, you're successful, and you can stop a lot of that. But I would caution you, and this is only you can make up your mind, no good deed goes unpunished. So you will probably pay a price for it. But And, and only you can, can make up your mind. And I do this practically every place I talk or teach. And when I'm giving talks in front of a, a large audience, invariably, and it, and it happened at this last ILEA conference, after my presentation, some com- someone comes up and says, let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> okay? Yes. So ethics are extremely important, and, and ethics need to be part of the basic training of all intelligence analysts. And I don't mean ethics in terms of theory. I mean ethics in terms of what happens actually on the job with real experiences rather than, than some of the, the more academic theoretical approaches. I'm, I'm not trying to knock it. It's just that, that if you can bring it home to them, this is what people have done before and this is what, where they've stood up. It resonates, whereas theory often does not resonate. Okay. Good. Hey, I want to move on a little bit. Certainly could talk to you hours, if not yeah, days. Yeah, I'm afraid, on this, you know, I should have warned topic. you, you have an extrovert in front of you. <laughs> well, I'll take it. It's This is all good stuff. So I do want to move on to you analyzing and studying uh, mass shootings. And okay. as I said in your intro, you have a very personal connection right. to to one mass shooting in particular in that you have a family member that was one of the victims of a mass shooting. Right. So right. I want to start there with just, you know, that particular shooting and then work our way with some of the work that you've done since then. Okay. Well, in, on January 16, 2002, the mother of my oldest grandchild was gunned down at the first school shooting here in Virginia at the Appalachian School of Law. And I know it may sound awkward to call her the mother of my oldest grandchild, but the lawyers said, your son was not married to her, so therefore she is the mother of... And if, if there is a lawsuit, you... <laughs> Please refer to her that that way. So, so I know it sounds awkward, and from now on, I'm going to call her my daughter-in-law because yeah. that we're a family, and that's that's the way it functioned. Yes. Okay, let me back up just a little bit because I remember when the Columbine shooting took place. Mm-hmm. I was on assignment overseas in Sarajevo, and I was off work and watching television. I think it was Armed Forces television, and they had live coverage of Columbine. And I can remember being absolutely devastated. I 
that was so such an impact on me. I remember the pattern of the carpet. I remember the view out the window. I remember I remember the faces on the pe- I remember this. I thought I felt the depth of the tragedy because I, I'm a parent and now a grandparent. I did not. When it hits your family, it is it is beyond description. And the only reason that I can do this is because Angie was not my child. There's just the slightest degree of separation. She was part of my family, but I never raised her. I was not there when she was born. I was not there, you know, to help her learn to walk through school, to, to help her get off to college, to, you know, to all of those things. So there is a degree of separation that has allowed me to do this, although it's very painful. Mm. But where my work as an analyst came came to bear was I knew immediately from school officials, from medical officials, and from local law enforcement officials that we were not being told the truth. There were, I mean, there were holes in their story that you could drive a Mack truck through, okay? Mm-hmm. And so I set out and to analyze. And, and uh, I wrote the first book on on that. It's as a matter of fact, it's coming out either late this month or next month in its third edition. My publisher has a new editor. She read the book and she said she thinks this book needs to be updated, which I've done. New new epilogue, new chapter, and it's coming out in late July or early August, and it's called The Murder of Angela Dales. And by the way, all proceeds go to charity. Mm-hmm. I don't take any money for any of my writing or any of my work on behalf of of the victims of mass shootings. So from there, when when Virginia Tech occurred, I read a, a large article in the Washington Post, and they cited a family, the Samaha family, who lost their daughter. I called the reporter and introduced myself, and I said, look, I have a file cabinet worth of research on, on the first mass shooting here at a school, and the Virginia Tech families are welcome to it, but I, I, I don't want to try and call them directly. I would appreciate it if you would call the Samaha family, tell them who I am, that I've written the book, I've done research on all of this, and they're welcome to anything I have. And within 24 hours, I had a phone call from the Samaha family and met with them. And the thing the, progressed from there. I turned over all the information and I, as much as I could, I helped them. They asked me to, to review and analyze the governor's report, which I did. I reviewed it and found 44 errors in it, all sorts of things of that nature. And then another family in New Jersey, the Poli family, I got a call from, from Michael Poli Sr. His son was killed in a German class and he said, would you do the same thing for us? Would you write a book that exposes the cover-up and the deceit that has taken place in the Virginia Tech shooting? And I said, yes, I will. And over my wife's objections, because she was concerned about my health. When I was writing the book on Angie, I was throwing up two and three times a week. Mm -hmm. I was so tied in knots. And she said, you're going to kill yourself. And I said, well, (laughs) that may be. I don't know it's a great loss, except to me. That's not the (laughs) case at all. But what I said was this. I said, I cannot, when a father calls me in this situation and asks for help, I, I just can't say no. I'm sorry. So at any rate, I wrote that book. And I'm pleased to say that I think we had 12 of the families are interviewed and their stories are in the book. I also, the book has something of a first I'm very proud of. As you probably know, police are very reluctant to be interviewed, particularly those involved in a homicide 
Well, one of the families called me and said, how would you like to speak with one of the state police officers that was on the campus at Virginia Tech? And I said, I would love to, but he's not going to talk to me. That's just sort of a general rule. And she said, well, let me talk with him. Well, it turns out I interviewed him. He agreed. And, and before I started the interview, I told him, I said, look, you need, before you agree to this interview, you need to know this. My book is very critical of the Virginia Tech chief of police. You are a member of the state police. That could be very awkward for you. Mm-hmm. And I said, my, my, my criticism centers around his actions at the double homicide before the mass shooting which occurred later. And the officer said, look, I was not on the campus then. I did not arrive until the mass shooting started. And he said, what you have to say about that is your business. Let's proceed with the interview. So I, I think the book has something, something a little bit unusual in that a police officer talks to me. Is he currently with, still with the state police or is he? No, he has retired now. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding he has retired now. Yeah, but but he was he established a very close bond with this one family, and 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 that's what what brought the whole thing about. And and he had what what we sometimes forget that the police officers who go in are victims as well for what they see. Mm-hmm. And and he told me some stuff that that I just can't repeat. I I just can't do it. Can't talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and did you say that book is about to be published as well? No, that, no, that one, that one is, is out. It's called Virginia Tech. <clears throat> Make sure it doesn't get out. That book is out. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I so. don't, I don't know. If at some point I have a feeling <clears throat> the publisher is going to say, let's update it. And re- <laughs> I, <laughs> what, what more we can do. <clears throat> but all of that led when the Virginia Beach mass shooting occurred on May 31, 2019. And uh, I got a call. I'm a member of, as you mentioned, I, I've written a number of books. And I'm a member of Hampton Roads Writers, which is based in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area. And I got a call from the head of that organization and said, we, we have a writer who was a city employee in the building where the mass shooting took place. He's suffering from severe PTSD. He wants to know if there's any writer in the organization who has dealt with mass shootings that would talk with him. Would you be willing to talk with him? And of course, the answer is yes. So I... I talked with him. It turns out we have very different views on, on how you prevent this. His, his answer is to arm everybody. That is not my answer at all. Very different answers, a matter of fact. But, but we get along beautifully. He wants to write a book. And I looked at some of his chapters and some things of that nature. And then we drifted apart. And I, all of a sudden, I got a, a, an email from someone else. And this was a man by the name of Jason Nixon, whose wife was gunned down that day. And he has three daughters. And the youngest one was a year and a half when his wife was killed. And he has three little girls. And he wanted wanted my help. And so I said, Jason, I'm happy to help you any way I can. Let me send you my books. I've written three books on mass shootings. Let me send them to you. And let me send you my resume. Well, he got my resume which is the same one I sent you with one edition. And that edition is unbeknownst to me. He went to a delegate Fowler in the state, the state legislature here in Virginia, which was forming a commission to investigate the shooting. And he went to delegate Fowler and said, I want this man on the commission. And so she nominated me yeah. and, and governor Northam appointed me. So I am currently serving on the commission to investigate the Virginia Beach mass shooting. Yeah. And you have you met yet for the first time? 
as oh, a commission? Yeah, 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 Jason, this is another podcast coming okay. here. Okay, but, but let me just briefly say the, the commission was actually formed two years ago. Okay. It's made up of 21 members. Are we, the commission mandate expired on June 31 of this year. It has been extended for two years. Now, we didn't hold our first meeting until a year ago in June because the, they had problems getting people to join the commission. One of the problems is the size of the commission. The commissions for uh, Virginia Tech and for Columbine were 10 and 8 people respectively. Under Robert's rules of orders, you have to have 50% to have a quorum to hold a meeting. We have 21. We had to have 11 people from all over the state of Virginia. We would go out for prolonged periods of time and not hold any meeting. Plus, I, well, I don't want to ascribe motives to some people, but 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 let me just say that I think there may be, and apologies if, to the people if I'm wrong, there may be people who are very interested in having it on their resume that they're on the commission. Mm. Okay? Yeah. And 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 that's that is a problem. Mm. Now now the new governor has renewed us, but he's up the membership to twenty-two. <laughs> so I don't know where we're going. And I haven't heard a word. I don't know when we're gonna meet. Seven people who were on the commission have have said they do not want to be on on it any longer. So they're having to fill seven positions plus add one, which is going to take time. They did not give this, the commission subpoena power. Mm-hmm. So there is nothing in any way, shape, or form to, how, how can I say, to, to, to get people to come to talk to us. Mm-hmm. So we, we, have, we have all sorts of problems, which I have, have documented at great length in my frustrations that the commission was ill-conceived from the outset. It had the misfortune of being formed just as COVID-19 hit, which was part of the reason why we went for a year without any meetings. Hmm. But I, I, I think, for lack of a better word, there are some people on the commission who are not enthusiastic about our task. Hmm. Okay? I'm not going to, at this point in time, I will not go any further than that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, is there, do you have a stated goal for this commission? Yes, we have, we have about eight objectives. Of okay. course, one of them is to, to try and find the motive behind the killer. He, he died in, in the shooting. We are to look at the, at the problems, if there were any, in the city of, of Virginia Beach that may have contributed to an atmosphere. We're to come up with recommendations about how to what what can we advise the legislature to adopt that that might help prevent future mass shootings there there are there are eight and frankly i don't recall all eight of, of them off the top sure. of my no that gives that gives the listeners and i an idea of what the the goal is so that works well i my follow-up question is more towards the idea of a cover-up and yeah. that aspect of the mass shootings, because that resonates with, I think, a lot of us, because we just went through the, uh, is it Valde? Is it, yes. Am I pronouncing that right? The, the school yeah. shooting in Texas, in which there was widespread speculation that a number of procedures were not followed and that questioning just how the police behaved in that situation and certainly a lot of questions of cover-up. Well, so, in, the case of, in the case of Virginia Beach, I'm going to stop just short of saying cover-up. Okay. 
Okay, there are there are three areas of major concern in the, in the city of Virginia Beach. The first has to do with security. Uh, security was for all practical purposes, non-existent. The, the city of Virginia Beach has a campus of government buildings, and they're all built in sort of the colonial Williamsburg. You know, it's a beautiful setting. Four stories tall. Imagine this, Jason. Each floor of the building had its own rules and regulations for security, different locks, different procedures for getting in. So when the police arrived, it was 20 to 25 minutes before they could actually get the key or the key card to get into where the killer was carrying out his rampage. So, you know, it was not a case in the case of Virginia Beach that the police did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. If there is a culprit, and I'm ready to drop the if, it's the city of Virginia Beach. We found out from some of the interviews that, that, that the city government would allocate money for security and then decide after the budget had been passed to take that money and use it elsewhere. Okay. Some of the people in the building said, we never had any security drills. We never had any active, active shooter drills. We didn't know where to go. We didn't know what to do. We didn't. Now, my argument is in in 2019, when that occurred, Virginia had already had two mass shootings. Mass shootings, unfortunately, are almost a common way of life in this country. And for the state's largest city, which is what Virginia Beach is, to have a woefully adequate security program is inexcusable. I call it, and this is my opinion, gross negligence. Okay. Absolutely gross, gross negligence. The city of Virginia Beach had adopted a security program in, I believe it was May or June of 2000, 2000. Yeah, 2000. I have read that program, even by, by the standards of the year 2000, it is terrible. Okay. They, they never updated it. They never reviewed it. N- never turned any, you know, so there you've got one issue and that's not the police. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine those police officers who are armed and ready to go in and they can't get into where the shooting is. Take- you can imagine what they live with because of that. Okay. The second is, is HR. And I think this was for budgetary reasons. The city of Virginia beach adopted a program they call HR liaison. Okay, so that meant in all the working units and where most of the massacre took place was in the public utilities floor of building number two. And most of the people were in engineering. They were engineers. Okay, well, that meant that you were an engineer in public works. And oh, by the way, in your spare time, you were to take care of all HR matters. Furthermore, we're not going to give you any training. Okay? Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, and, and apparently, from what we can tell, the management in that building, particularly on, it's on the second floor mainly, was really, really terrible. It was, it was, it was argumentative. They engaged in, in, in humiliation of, of employees, you know, the type of thing that I'm talking about, which if you have an employee who is mentally unstable, you can imagine what that does. Plus, he was an African-American. And apparently, there had there at least in one instance we know of there had someone had used a racial slur against him okay so how many of these things have to build up before an individual like that 
blows up. And I know, now this is where I'm, <laughs> I've told you that, that I really like the FBI, which I do. But the FBI's behavioral analysis unit did a, an analysis of, of the shooting from the, from the perspective of the shooter, okay? And they came up and they came up, gave a beautiful presentation. A slide shows all the bells and whistles. And their final, final position on this was that the shooter suffered from mental illness. He withdrew within himself. And therefore, if, if he was sending signals, he was so withdrawn that, that none of his fellow employers, employees or his employer would have seen it. Well, I asked the FBI behavior and analysis units twice this question. If you say that, that the killer was not sending signals that would have alerted people to the shooting, then how do you explain the fact that Kate Nixon, the night before the, the massacre, had a talk with her husband about her safety and that she feared for her safety because of this individual, and the husband wanted her to take a gun to work? because he was so afraid for her. How do you factor that in to, to he was not sending any signals? How do you factor in the fact that just to withdraw within yourself and get progressively withdrawn is a signal? How do you factor in that, that some of his employees said they, they went to lunch with him in the months before the shooting and in the restaurant, he started hallucinating about people in the restaurant talking about him and taking pictures of people. They're talking about me. They're spying on me. You know, so isn't that a signal? How do you factor in the fact that on the day of the shooting, while it was in progress, one of the employees who was barricaded in a room with others said to a second employee, I know who that kill. I know who the killer is. It's, it's Dwayne Craddock. Well, she had to be seeing signals, didn't she? So FBI, please tell me how you factor that into your contention that, that there was, that, this, that, that even if he was sending signals, there was no one to receive them. The evidence seems to be quite the contrary, the little that we have so far. What was and the response? The response both times was this sentence. We analyzed everything the city gave us, period. Mm. That's not an answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's that's number two. Number three, in the case of Virginia Beach, is training. Okay. And the training cuts across really the first two. The training would would be active shooter training. The training would be if you are going to decentralize your your HR program, you need to make sure that the people taking over the responsibility have the necessary training so that that they will know and pick up on signals that a distressed individual may be sending. Now, and the reason I say this, I was a manager at, at CIA. And when I, all managers, and I hated it, I had to go through, it's either a two or three day course in managing people. And, you know, by then I was just old and crusty enough that I didn't want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that we, we were trained on and talked about is employees that are in distress and the signals that they sent, and, and how do you handle it? Well, as it turns out, I had at least two, if not three, employees, one of whom was suicidal, and I knew what to do. And I immediately got called in the appropriate people and, and, and the health officers to get this person help. And another one was a woman who was being beaten up by her husband. She was coming in all black and blue. That affected her, her work and affected her, 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 her mental health. I knew what to do in that case. So I'm sorry, Virginia Beach and, and FBI Behavior and Analysis Unit. Something is not ringing true. Something is not true. And as a matter of fact, I wrote 
I was so concerned about the commission that we were going to end on June 31st, at June 30th, (laughs) June 30th, that (laughs) math is not my strong. I was so concerned that I wrote my own report Mm. and I distributed it to the commission. And in fact, in effect, what I was doing was I was putting them on notice. If you do not address these issues, I'm releasing this to the public. Because what they wanted to talk about was an academic report that talked about, well, what are the probabilities of these shootings taking place? What about, you know, we have to be careful because hindsight analysis is always 2020. Yeah, everybody, everybody who's done research knows that. That's no great shit. You're using it as an excuse to cover something up is what you're doing. And then the most galling of all was to talk about the civil rights of the shooter. The shooter had civil rights. The city couldn't move against him because it might have violated his civil rights. And of course, I went ballistic and said, what about the civil rights of the 12 people that were killed, the four people who were injured, and all of the people who are suffering from PTSD that are relatives of the victims or worked in that building? What about their civil rights? If you're, and I, I actually put this in writing, if you're going to talk about the, the killer's civil rights, I will insist on space in a report to talk about the civil rights of those who were killed and all of those who have been damaged by this shooting. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you face. Did you get any feedback from that, distributing that to the commission? I did. I got mixed reaction. It was one of our last meetings. And one person said my recommendations were, were excellent, really liked them, thought the commission should, cons- you know, blah, 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 blah. But that, I think, was just, just warming me up for, the, for their, their strike. Because then one of the lawyers, I made a, a comment ab- about the legal profession. And I made a comment about the Virginia Supreme Court and the fact that the Supreme, in the case of Virginia Tech, the Virginia Supreme Court, once the school was held liable for charges, the, the, the state appealed it to the Virginia Supreme Court and they threw the jury verdict out and the two families got nothing. They got no compensation for the death of their daughters. Well, when the Supreme Court wrote the decision, they introduced false evidence that changed some of the basic facts of what took place. And I referred to that as a, as a corruption of the Virginia political system. And one of the lawyers really got hot, hot under the collar on that. And my feeling was, well, that's showbiz. I mean, I, I didn't say this to him, but, but if he ever hits me again with, I'm going to say, well, it's my understanding that it is against the law in any court proceeding to introduce false evidence. And I have proven that it is, that it's, I've, I consulted five lawyers before I wrote this book. And they said, yes, you're right, but don't quote me by name. <laughs> because if you do, my, my legal career in Virginia is over. So that's the way it appears in my book. And that's the way I put it in here. Now, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of doing, Jason. I've modified it. I now call it a miscarriage of justice. Okay, soften it just a little bit. Sure. And I've made some other changes in it. And I'm thinking of talking with my publisher. It's about 40 or 50 pages long. And it includes, one, one of the things that it includes, as you know from crime analysis, is a timeline. The commission never established a firm timeline. That's crime analysis 101. And so I took all of the timelines, the one the police did, the FBI did, the one the city did, and I combined them. And then just recently, I got the video cam 
of the police officers that came out in June. And I used theirs to fill in some of the timeline. And that's where, excuse me, I was able to pinpoint that it was 20 to 25 minutes once the police got on site before they could get into where the killer was carrying on his ring. But anyway, part of that is a very lengthy timeline that I have produced, which factors in all of these times. The commission should have done that right from the outset. That's where you start. You start with a timeline in crime analysis, don't you? I mean, yep. isn't that basic? The step-by-step facts yes. of the case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That. And, and you see, we never did that. So what I'm thinking of doing is, and I have the most wonderful publisher who stands behind me with all of this stuff, you know, she's she's just terrific, is asking her if we can produce that report as 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 just a, a it's more than a brochure, but it would be just a very short 50-page report on, on the commission to investigate the Virginia Beach mass shooting of May 31 through the end of June 19, I'm sorry, 19, through the end of June 2022, and see if we can't, can't produce that. And in part, I'm not trying to play games with the commission. I'm, I'm not trying to do anything except, Jason, I take this very, very seriously. I'm not on this commission at to, to pad my resume. I'm not on this commission because I have a security consulting firm and I want to make money. That's, that's, I'm, I'm on this commission to try and get at the truth as to what happened. And I told the commission the opening day when we introduced ourselves, I said it as much because they asked what our goals were and things. And I said, well, my hope is at the end of our work that we can look the legislature in the face and we can look Equally, if not more important, the family, we can look them in the eye and say, we tried our best to get some answers. And this is what we have. And the report that I wrote says, we cannot say that. We have failed. We did not try our best. Man, wow. All right. Well, hey, I hope things turn around for that commission. And I hope that gets the, the answers and achieve the goals that we just talked about. Yeah, I do want to lighten up the interview as we end. Okay, as we okay, end by the all means. Yeah, yeah just a little, so little heavy move, right now. Yeah, so I want to move on to personal interests. I know that you are writing a book, but this time you are writing some nonfiction, and it's just obviously it's a different way of writing. And you talked about the woman who would have difficulty going from writing a novel to writing an intelligence. Yeah. And now you're doing the exact opposite where you spent your career in intelligence, and now yeah. you're trying to write nonfiction uh, for a book. So I just wanted to talk about the project and talk about your struggles with writing well, this book. I'll tell you what, it's actually the, the, the book I was referring to uh, is now out and it's, it's creative nonfiction. Although I, awesome. I do have, I do have the ideas. I have a, a piece of fiction I really want to write. And I have a file on my laptop where I, when I have time, I'm working on it, yeah. but I have three or four writing projects I'm working on. Yeah. But let me, ju- let me just tell you that going, breaking away from the fiction, fiction, the nonfiction intelligence writing that I have done and breaking ground, going into creative nonfiction has been painful. <laughs> you know, if you, if you spend over 30 years of your life and you can't use an adjective, yeah. And now all of a sudden, I, I've, I've written the first volume of my memoir, and I'm, I'm talking, I, I want to create emotion. Mm-hmm. I, and and in, in intelligence writing, one of the, the objectives is the writer should never see the author. 
Mm-hmm. When you're writing a memoir, it's all about the author. Yeah. You see? So to say that it's painful, and I, I read it and re- it, it took a long time to do because I kept reading it and I thought, this sounds like mush. <laughs> it's, 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 it's terrible, you know? And I, I probably lost a lot of friends by having them look at a chapter yeah. and say, please tell me what is wrong with this yeah, because it just doesn't sound right. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. You- so it's very difficult to go from one form of writing. The greater your degree of success in any form of writing, I think the more difficult it is to go into other forms yeah. because they're based on completely different principles. Yeah. I picture that you wrote a mystery and then in the first sentence said who the killer is. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably what I would do. That's exactly right. So much, so much for the mystery. Well, I had one, the book that's coming out on on Angie's, when when the first volume of it came out, a a number of people read it, including an acquaintance of mine who was a script writer and actually had some scripts at the script anyway, reviewed or presented or something at the Sundance Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Well, he read it and he said, Dave, you've got to write a script for this. This would be great. And I said, I have no idea. You know, just, just the thought, because if you're writing a script, you're having to imagine the scene, the setting, the stage or the background mm-hmm. in the movie. And, and that with the words creates the whole picture. And, and, sure. and also you have the, the, the way the, the actor delivers the lines, the expressions on the actors. All of these things have to come together. I don't know how you do it. Oh, yeah. I said, because mine is a very simplistic pedestrian form of writing. It's very difficult in that you you have to take complex ideas and and put them in a very compressed form and not lose any of the complexity of it. But but to but to go into something where where you're having to create you know creativity and mood and all, I mean yeah I, I'm I'm going to try and do it someday. As a matter of fact, my wife bought me a book on script writing. I won't tell you how long ago she bought it, but <laughs> but, but I, I I'm thinking that I may try and take a course in it and see if I can't write a script. And and then if then I also have a a piece of, of fiction that I true fiction that I want to write, which is based in, in in rural Virginia, picking up on some of the idiosyncrasies of rural life in Virginia. <laughs> All right. So with this interview, we'll put in the links to David's publications and some additional information if you're wanting to read up on some of the topics that we covered today. All right, David, our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Okay. I, I, oh boy, I think I, I would, would, would give advice to three different categories based on, on intelligence. One is uh, invite, uh, the advice that I've already touched on to managers and intelligence organizations, and that is to stand behind your analysts. Make sure that you support them and encourage them. And as much as you may not want to, to say this, tell them that it's okay on occasion, not a lot, <laughs> but on occasion to be wrong. Yes. Because if you don't, if you do not make it clear to the analyst that that's that's the environment he or she is working in, you will not get the analysis that you need. You will always get the intelligence analysis that's pulling its punches. And then advice to the analysts, I would say, 
don't hesitate to speak out. One of the intimidating, one of the, well, let me back up. One of the things that I love about the intelligence profession are the people that I interact with. It's very humbling. Every day I went to work, I worked with people that were head and shoulders above me in terms of their abilities and intelligence, and I felt I was growing and learning. That can be intimidating because you can think, well, what do I have to say? Well, you may have a lot to say, so, so don't be afraid to, to speak out. And again, uh, uh, the same as, as with the managers, know that you will be wrong at some point. And it's not the end of, of the world. I learned an early lesson as, as a young analyst. M- my mentor was arguing with a State Department intelligence officer over an issue that was going in to our major publication and State Department had to clear it. My mentor won. I was on a Friday. On By Monday, we had the information in that, that my mentor was correct, that the intelligence was correct. And on Monday at nine o'clock, the State Department analyst called him to congratulate him and said, you know, Gene, you were right and I was wrong. Do not be afraid to admit that you're wrong. You can be wrong anywhere along the line. You have to be willing to admit, I misjudged it. I missed something. Mm. That has to be part of it. And finally, I think advice to people who want to be intelligence analysts or the public in general to, to understand the intelligence community and not believe all of the conspiratorial theories that you hear. The definition, by definition, intelligence and the intelligence profession has to have secrecy. That runs counter to basic American ideals and principles. But I would ask you to remember that who's running your intelligence organization, your fellow Americans who are in there in order to protect the freedoms that you have. And if you know everything and have all the secrets, then they are not going to be successful in protecting this country and its citizens. So you have to understand. You also have to understand that when we are criticized by hindsight, you know, the people will say, well, how could you miss this and miss that? You have to put yourself in the position of when the decision was being made to make the judgment. What was the analyst looking at? What were the possible alternatives? And so the analyst picked the wrong one. The evidence the analyst thought was something else and, and discarded a, a possible alternative. That's just simply human nature, and it is going to happen. I run an exercise, particularly when I teach my classes to non-intelligence people. I give them a page and a half on terrorism in Morocco, and then I give them six intelligence sentences of what and a so what. Each one can be argued. One of them's incorrect. Read it and tell me which one is which one is the correct one. If you were in the a- an analyst, these are the six possibilities that you might be looking at. And boy, is that an eye open. <laughs> Very rarely does anyone in, in the audience pick the correct one <laughs> of, of what, it re- what really happened. Okay. And I say, now, now do you see why it is, is not totally fair to use the reverse connect the dots to blame the intelligence community or intelligence analysts for missing it? Because you don't know what they were looking at at the time they made, they made the choices. They made. So those, those, those are the things I would pass on. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Great, great. <laughs> but I do yeah, appreciate you, know, you being join on the chorus to do that, Jason. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, David. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Okay, thank you. 
Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.